Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I want to start this morning with our message by sharing with you a very embarrassing story. Oh, that got their attention. Most of you know, I grew up as a missionary kid, and one of the things of the international lifestyle is that you're flying a lot. You take a lot of planes. So I don't know how many flights I've taken through my life, but it's, I'm sure, in the hundreds. And last year, I was going to a missions, sorry, not a missions retreat, a passage retreat in South Dakota. And I bought my tickets. I had to go to Rapid City, South Dakota. If anyone's been to Mount Rushmore, that's where you go to see Mount Rushmore. And my staff knows where I'm going with this because I, I had to admit to this. So now what happened on this particular flight was probably the most embarrassing, identity disintegrating mistake I've ever made. <laughs> So I drive myself to Newark Airport. I park the car, get to the terminal, check the board, find my gate, go to the gate, check the city on the display, board the plane, put my bag up in the, the luggage compartment, sit down, get my, I got my book ready to read, I got my stuff, you know, it's all set up. And the pilot says, welcome to this flight to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I thought, I actually laughed. I said, oh, that's funny. That's really funny. You got me, pilot. And I look around and no one's laughing. (laughs) And all of a sense, all of a sudden this doom just descended on me. And I realized I'm on the wrong plane. And then I thought, where in the world is Grand Rapids? And so I pull out my phone. I'm like, you know, how far is it? It's a thousand miles from where I needed to be, which I will point out also had the word rapids in it. (laughs) But I was on the wrong plane. And I was, my first feeling was freaking out. They shut the door and it's like, well, I guess I'm going to Grand Rapids. There's no getting off the plane once the door's shut. And my second thought was of just utter embarrassment. And I thought, wow, Ian, you seasoned traveler. How many opportunities did you have to see that you had boarded the completely wrong flight to the wrong destination? And there I was, and it was too late. And the problem was not so much what I'd done, because I just went through the motions. It was more a problem with what I had failed to do, which was accurately read the website when I bought my ticket, the email containing my ticket, the departure board telling me 
where the flight's going and what gate to go to. The city written on the gate board. (laughs) And it didn't dawn on me until a voice came through the speakers and said, you're going to a different place. And you may see a little bit where I'm going with this as we're reading the story of Jonah. We're in our second week of the, this series on the book of Jonah, family vacation, not vacation, vocation, about how God has shaped his family to send them into the world with a purpose, with a job. And we've seen how this is the theme at the heart of the book of Jonah, that Jonah is not only a story about this historical prophet, but it is bigger than that. It's a parable for the people of God and particularly for the apathy of the people of God, the people of God failing to notice the direction that they were actually going in. And so going completely off course. And so this is the story that we're drawn into. Just like Jonah, humanity's past has Let us away from the face of God, who is love and life and creation. And so when you're walking away from the face of God, you're inevitably heading towards the depths of death and decay and chaos. And so we have the symbol of the sea as this place of running from the face of God. And the question that we're left asking after last week's introduction is, how is God going to respond to this rejection of the calling that he's placed on humanity? So we've got our Mukunji campus joining us live this morning. So welcome. And to anyone watching online, we're going to be carrying on in the story of Jonah. And we're going to reread the first three verses, but continue down to verse 16 and find out the next episode of this story. So if you want to open your Bibles to Jonah, chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading from verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And remember, his name means dove, son of faithfulness. And it said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. And we saw last week that could also be translated, their calamity has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is the opposite direction from Nineveh. It was the edge of the world from the perspective of the Hebrews. And it says he rose to flee to Tarshish from the face of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It's interesting that the ship is anthropomorphized there. It's turned into living character. The Hebrew says it's literally thinking of breaking up. The ship is pondering, should I break up or not? So the ship becomes a character. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part or the lower part of the ship. 
and had lain down and was fast asleep. I'm emphasizing the down, the down, the down, this downward trajectory. He'd lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. This was a common ancient way of finding out the will of the gods was to cast basically a set of dice that would reveal that by, by the chance of how they fell, the gods will. And so let us cast lots. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? It can also be translated, what is your mission? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and, let, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So, before we see what this has to say to us, we need to notice a few more things about this narrative. Because it might be tempting on a first reading of this, you might read this and come away thinking that this is the turning point for Jonah. This is where he comes to his senses, he takes responsibility for running away, and he turns back, he repents, he does the right thing. But we need to look a little closer here. Because what, just ask, what exactly does Jonah actually do? <laughs> he lays down and falls asleep. It's pretty much the only active thing that he does in this whole passage. And what's interesting is the word that it uses to talk about him being fast asleep. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2 when God puts Adam into a deep sleep to make Eve out of his side. And so the author's saying he's not just tired. Jonah is completely under. He's completely anesthetized to his surroundings. And in fact, I love how the ancient Greek version, the Septuagint of the, the Hebrew book of Jonah, it translates this word, he was in ecstasies. In ecstasy. The ecstasy, the blissful unawareness of being completely asleep. <laughs> and then he gets this 
rude awakening. And it's literally a rude awakening. The, the captain comes down and kind of, you know, disses him and tells him, it, did you notice he uses the same verbs that God used to Jonah? He says, arise, call out to your God. And so just like Jonah arose at the voice of God, he arises at the voice of the captain. But the question for us, is he actually awake? Does he actually wake up at this point? And I want you to notice just how much the author through this passage is continually emphasizing. He's taking great pains to emphasize Jonah's passivity. He's completely and utterly passive. There's three verbs used towards the mariners, and each time they do something, there's more and more description. There's three verbs used of Jonah, and each time he, something happens to him or he does something, there's less and less description. So he's passive, and he's becoming more and more passive. And so what are the mariners doing? The mariners, they take action, they make sacrifices, they pray, they cast lots, they ask questions, they row for all their lives to try and get to safety and they do their best to really not kill this guy who's becoming very annoying. And here you've got Jonah, who is the most knowledgeable, the most equipped person, the only one who can actually fix the situation, and he's the least active agent in the whole story. Like I said, even the ship and the sea are more aware and active than Jonah is. All that Jonah does, when you pay attention, all that Jonah does is he gets chewed out, he gets found out, and he gets thrown out. (laughs) He doesn't even jump overboard himself. You notice that? He doesn't just do it. He says, okay, throw me over, right? (laughs) So I, I just want to suggest to you that this is not a picture of repentance. This is intended to be a picture of complete and utter spiritual apathy. Complete and utter spiritual apathy. And what's in focus here in this passage is it's how what Jonah doesn't do affects everyone and everything around him. His apathy affects all the people around him. And it also, it's interesting, it affects the environment around him. And so the question we're forced to ask is, and this is our first point here, is that what happens when the family of God falls asleep to its vocation? What happens? I think what this is showing us is that we're all in the same ship. The mariners, they're the picture of the Gentile nations, the peoples of the nations. And you've got Jonah here, who is an image of the people of God among the nations, but they're all in the same boat. And we're all in the same boat, and we know that our boat is sinking. We've known for as long as we can remember that the ship is sinking. And just like the mariners, humanity is constantly asking this question, who's responsible and how can we fix it? And there's all sorts of different answers to that question. Everybody's continually asking that question. And there's all sorts of answers to that question. And the way that we answer those questions typically comes down to what you could call a gospel. There's lots of different gospels. Competing gospels, actually, which you can think of. They're almost, there's these stories 
that answer the questions, what should the world be like? What went wrong? And how do we fix it? All sorts of different gospels that attempt to answer those stories. So I'll just name a few. There's an environmentalist gospel. There's a progressive gospel. There's a conservative gospel. There's a nationalistic gospel. There's a collectivist gospel. There's a consumerist gospel. And there's everything in between. And all of them, in their own ways, they answer those questions for us. This is what, what, it has a vision of what the world should be like. Here's what's holding us back from that. And here's the way towards salvation, if you will. So they're all different, but they all essentially have the same storyline. And I would sum it up like this, that every gospel has a vision of the ideal. It has a villain to overcome, and it offers a way of salvation. And there's something about human beings that we just can't help but live by some sort of gospel, some story that helps us answer these central questions. And they affect how we live our lives, the aims that we direct ourselves towards in lives. And I think just like the mariners, we have this intuitive sense, this kind of deep fear, no matter who we are, no matter how we've grown up, no matter what gospel we attempt to live by, we have this deep fear that somehow we're falling short. We're falling short of the way things should be. We're falling short, not only of that, but of the way we should be. And that somehow we owe a debt that we're not able to pay. And so this is why we cry out. We need answers. And so every person's in this sinking ship, crying out to their gods to save them, hurling out sacrifices to the sea. And by the way, when they're throwing out the cargo that, You don't get it in the English very much, but when they're throwing out the cargo, they're not just trying to lighten the ship. They're actually sacrificing to the sea. They're trying to appease powers that they cannot comprehend. And so this is the very circumstance in which the people of God are sent into. People of God are sent into this sinking ship given the light of the true gospel called into the world as salt and light, as Jesus told us. And when you look through history, there's been many moments when there's been a moment of darkness, of desperation, where this is exactly what the church has been. But this passage is asking the question, what happens when the church is asleep? What happens when the world is full of fear and desperation and turns to the church and finds her blissfully unaware? And the world asks, where are you? What are you doing to help? Do you care about us? You can hear this desperation in the captain's questions. And they look to the church that's meant to be a witness of the gospel of the kingdom and they don't see, they don't hear they, they can't touch that kingdom being proclaimed. And so I think what this is telling us is that when the church neglects its calling, the world suffers. The world suffers for lack of witness. Jonah's doing pretty fine. It's everything around him that's falling apart. So what happens? Now watch this. I want you to see this. Jonah lies down and he's fast asleep in the cargo hold. 
and a Jonah asleep in the cargo hold effectively just becomes another piece of cargo. Another potential sacrifice to throw off the ship, to lighten the load. In other words, he becomes dispensable. If you think about it, what happens when you have a passive church in the midst of a society in turmoil, a church blissfully unaware of the pains and desperations of its neighbors, a church asleep in the cargo hold, becomes another piece of cargo potentially to offload. Another burden to get rid of. And if there's no tangible benefit, if there's no discernible difference, then we begin to ask, well, maybe we'd be better off without her. And so the mariners, they go to Jonah, he comes up, they go to him and they start evaluating him. What is your occupation? They say, where do you come from? What is your country? And what people, and of what people are you? And he responds, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, when you read that, does it seem like he's dodging the question? Now, when you look at the commentaries, they actually point out, no, he is actually answering the question. And this is the answer. They ask him, what's your occupation? What's your job? And he says, the very center of this whole passage, the whole thing is, it's, the, it's called a chiasm, where it's pointing your direction towards the center of this pyramid almost. And it's this phrase, I fear the Lord. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. In other words, he's saying, that's my job. That is my vocation, to be part of the people of God and part of the mission of God, to fear him, to worship him, to do the life-giving work of the creator God, which is what we were looking at last week. And yet this is the very vocation that he's running from. And so it becomes clear, the ship is sinking because Jonah is not being who he's meant to be. He's not doing his job, which is to be and to fear and worship God. He's not even being who he professes to be. And you may have noticed, we're living in a cultural moment in the history of, our, of a civilization that at one time professed Christianity where many people are now evaluating the church and asking, what exactly is your role? What exactly is the benefit that you bring? What exactly have you done? And we have to ask ourselves, what is our responsibility as the people of God? And I want to give you a question that, that helps us judge responsibility. Here's a good question to ask when you want to evaluate responsibility. It's this, to what extent have we contributed to the very problems we complain about? To what extent have we contributed to the very problems we complain about? That's a great question to just take personal stock in a situation, in an argument, in a difficult situation. But it's a question that I think rings through this passage towards the people of God. And they ask, what shall we do with you, church? 
what shall we do with you, Jonah? And he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And what I think of when I read this is the thousands upon thousands of people right now in our moment in this country who are currently abandoning the church, a movement some people would call deconstruction, a process where they're deconstructing some of the things that have been meaning givers, the answers to those gospel kind of questions. And it's because they feel they've come to face with the faults of the church and maybe even their own complicity in some of those faults. And when you watch, well, you don't have to really watch much news. It just is bombarding us like every other day, a new scandal, a new hypocrisy, a new ministry, embezzlement, you know, embezzling, a new, you know, fill in the blank. And it's revealing just how big the gap is between what we profess and what we actually believe. Between our profession and our fear of God. And so, you know, I sense a fear of God in even saying this because there but for the grace of God go we and go I. But my heart goes out to all the people who felt like they've been insiders, they've grown up in the church, they know the theology, they know what the church is supposed to be, they know the identity, and nevertheless they say, throw us overboard. What's probably best is just get rid of church. That's what's better for society. I'm not saying get rid of God, but we probably need to get rid of this thing we call the church. And so Jonah, innocent dove, in this case, is the guilty one. Jonah, son of faithfulness, in this case, is the unfaithful one. And it's his guilt and his unfaithfulness that have brought calamity on the whole ship. And in that moment, he raises his hands. He says, yep, that's me. I did that. And it's saddening. It's sobering. So what does he do? He chooses to sacrifice himself for the common good, to get thrown overboard so that the rest of the ship won't perish. And you might think, well, that seems honorable. That seems like he is repenting. How is this not repentance? But here's what I think the author's trying to get us to see. Notice the one thing that Jonah never does through this whole passage. Not once does he call out to God. Not once does he cry out to God. He never asks for forgiveness. He never actually repents. And as Tim Keller used to often point out, there's two ways to avoid God. What, the most common way to avoid God is to be really bad. But you can just as much avoid God by trying to be really good. So good that you never need him. And so Jonah, he starts off the story by rebellion, by running away, by being very bad as a prophet. That's definitely bad prophet label goes on that. And now he tries to turn it around by all of a sudden being really good, by all of a sudden being the martyr. And in both cases, you see what he's doing? He's making himself the savior. In both cases, he's still acting as his own savior. And I think a lot of times when our sin and our apathy is exposed, 
we can feel bad. It's saddening. It's sobering. And it can lead us even to wish that we didn't exist. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were really, a sin was exposed in your life. Maybe it wasn't a big public thing, but God showed you somehow this deep area of sin that you had been asleep to in your life. And when you finally see it, you can say, whoa, am I, I hate myself. Why should I even continue existing? This self-hatred can come into the picture. And when the sins of the church are found out, it fills us with sorrow. It makes us somber. And we can also feel the same kind of self-hatred towards the people of God, towards our, our belonging in the people of God. But here's the thing that I think we need to see through this is that we shouldn't confuse self-hatred with repentance. There's two types of sorrow over sin in the Bible. You can read this in 2 Corinthians 7. I'll read that in just a second. There's two types of sorrow over sin, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. In other words, there's a sorrow that leads you further and further into yourself in despair. And there's a kind of sorrow that leads you out of yourself towards God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And I think what it's saying is that if we're confronted with our sin and you're saddened by it, you're sorrowed by it, and what happens is that you turn inwards into self-hatred, it only leads to death. And God does not confront us with our sin in order to condemn. He confronts us with our sin in order to offer an opportunity to turn around. It's a mercy. It's out of his love. And remember last week, this is the mercy, the love that Jonah did not feel the Ninevites were worthy of receiving. He didn't want to go to preach there because he says, I don't want them to have an opportunity to repent. And yet, this is the very same mercy that God has to show Jonah. Not as a punishment, as an opportunity to turn around. And how many times, how many moments through this story does he have an opportunity to stop, to cry out to God, and to change course? Even more times than I had on the way to South Dakota. <laughs> Here's the thing I want you to see. Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. And we read this, and you may have read this and thought, well, God's hurling this storm at Jonah to condemn him, to punish him for being rebellious. And so when he hurls himself off the ship, we think that Jonah's doing what he should do. And yet the whole time, God is trying to get his attention that he will call out. He'll be able to turn around. Arise and call out to your God, Jonah. He says it with words, and then he says it with a storm. He says it through his, the people around him. And this is the story of God continuing to be faithful, continuing to be merciful in the face of our pride, in the face of our apathy, in the face of our sin in the face of our rejection, in the face of our trying to save ourselves, he continues to reach out, continues to show mercy, continues to give us opportunities to turn around. And if God doesn't get your attention with his word, a lot of times 
you find yourself in the middle of a storm where he's trying to get your attention. And then you'll find other people speaking into your life to try and get your attention. And it's because he loves you. He's trying to give you a way to turn around. And in that moment, when you finally see it, like Jonah did. So Jonah, he finally sees it. There's no escape. He is found out. And in that moment, you can turn inwards and turn into self-hatred and sacrifice yourself as this grand gesture. But actually, that's not what God was looking for Jonah to do. He was still trying to save himself. It's almost like the descent into spiritual apathy continued going downwards. What he wants for you is to turn back, to turn to him, to get up and call out to him. Even when Jonah tries to self-destruct, God is there, offering him another opportunity. Even when Jonah throws himself off the ship, we know in the next verse, God sends this fish to swallow him up, to scoop him up off the bottom of the ocean. Some of us, that's our story. (laughs) But hopefully, you don't need to go that far. Hopefully, you can listen to the first loving warning and turn back. And you know what? There's many gospels that do a good job at presenting an ideal world, that do a good job at exposing the villains. But there's only one gospel that can lead us back towards life. Only one gospel leads back to life. And when the church is confronted with her sin, with her complicity, with her guilt, in some of the very problems that we spend so much time complaining about, the answer is not to deflect, it's not to defend, it's not to explain away. The answer is simply to repent. To rise up, to call out to God. And so I, I, I want to create a small space right now for any of us here who may be listening, who may be wrestling because you have been confronted recently with all the sins of the church. You've been disappointed. You've been brokenhearted. You've been angry at the things that you've seen and the hypocrisy that you've seen. And I've been there before in my life too, many times. And one time, especially in college, when I began reading some of the terrible things in history done in the name of God. And yet, in that moment, what do you do? Where do you turn? Which gospel will give you the answer? And I want to suggest that deconstructing, criticizing, critiquing, problematizing, they're all good and necessary tools. But if that's all the tools that you have, how do you get back to life? How do you move back towards healing and wholeness and redemption? Other gospels are good at diagnosing the villains, but they're not good at providing an adequate way of salvation. And so the only gospel where we see both, we're able to see the villain for who it is and the problems for what they actually are because we have the picture of what righteousness actually looks like. The only gospel that can help us diagnose the villains but also provide a way out, a way of redemption, is the gospel of Jesus. Someone wanted to clap and then got very hesitant. (laughs) 
It's okay to clap that if you want. <laughs> We're a clapping church. It's okay. <laughs> but the only gospel where we see both the villain and the way of salvation is this gospel of Jesus. The one that even though he was completely innocent as a dove, he gave himself for the guilty. Even though we had been completely faithless to him, he was utterly faithful to the end, to death, even death on a cross. The one whose love is the only power in the universe that's able to redeem us. And in Christ, we have, the, we have the truth to be able to see the faults, to see the errors, to see the hypocrisy, but we also have the offer of a different way, which is him. We have the offer of salvation in him. The grace that allows us to be freed from the crushing weight of our sin. And so the plea to you is, arise, call out to God. Because the scripture promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's only by turning to him, it's only by repenting. Repentance, it just, it literally means turning around. It's not really a very special word. It just means turn around. Change direction. Only, but if you turn around into yourself, it's only going to lead to deeper darkness and despair and desperation. No, turn around towards him the one who commands the sea, the one who is Lord over the nations, and the one who's called you for a purpose and a mission in your life as part of the family of God. And it's only by turning to him that we can actually be free from our pride and our arrogance and our sin. And so I believe the same is true for the church. And I just end with this, and I'll invite our musicians up to close us out with a moment of worship together to close. My last point here is that a wayward church is restored only by arising and calling out to God. The answer is not to jump ship. It's not to stay in self-hating apathy. The answer is to do what God told them to do in the first place. Arise. Get up. Call out. Call on your God. And when the world sees a church that doesn't wait to be found out and exposed, but actually freely repents, when the world sees a church that doesn't throw itself out with the bathwater, but humbles itself before God, when it doesn't mope around in dejection, but rises up in bold, loving action, that's a path towards recovering our prophetic witness. It's a path towards recovering the tangibility of the kingdom in a desperate world that is crying out for answers and that God has placed this special people, this family called out for that very purpose. And so a church that's living out its calling is not only the answer to the problems of the church, it's the, pro- it's the answer to the problems of the world. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I just want to offer an opportunity, especially for anyone who's heard this message and you find yourself in that position of realizing your own sin and realizing you have an opportunity here. What are you going to do? 
Where are you going to turn? And you have an invitation right now from this very same God that we've been reading about in the Bible. You have a living and open opportunity right now to turn to him. So if that's you, don't wait. Don't stay asleep any longer. Wake up, rise up, and call out because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him today. And there's others of us who've grown up in church. We know the stuff. We know the the theology. We know we've read this story a million times. And yet we're so disgusted by some of the things that we're seeing right now. Maybe people you know or people you see on TV. We're so disgusted. And so we're wondering, is this church really for me? Is the church really for me? Or would it be better to just get rid of it all? And I want to tell you, that's not the answer. The answer is not to throw the the church overboard. The answer is to be the church. To rise up and call out on the name of God. And when we do that together, we receive the humility to be real about our sin, to be real about our brokenness, because we don't need to cover it anymore. And we also have the joy and the freedom of a way out. And so if that's you, maybe you feel that you need to turn back to Jesus. And part of my story was that when I was in that place as a college student at a secular school, and I felt like, God, I cried out, God, I don't know if I want to be part of this thing called the church. I feel disgusted at the things that I'm seeing. And I felt like Jesus met me in that moment and said, Ian, I know that you can't trust the church or you don't feel you can trust the church. The question is, can you trust me? And so that's my question and that's my plea to you. Rise up. Call out on the name of Jesus. And I believe he will answer you. He will meet you because you can trust him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.